Amen. Wow, what a great time of worship. Amen. I mean, I'm full now. I don't, I don't even need to preach. Well, maybe I do. And, uh, but let me, let me just say this about the East Campus. was out there last week. Man, what a, what a great fellowship is going on. Doug is just doing, Doug and Sonia are doing great, a great work out there, and we appreciate them. Thanks so much. Thanks for being here today as well. I want us to take our Bibles, and we're going to finish up a series of messages on defining moments, and hopefully you're going to have kind of a defining moment and the most, really the most vital relationship in your life besides your relationship with God. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19 uh, this morning, and we're going to talk about uh, marriage. And uh, we live in Disney World, right? And you've seen the movies, and here's a princess getting together with a debonair gentleman. They get together, they get married, and they live. East Campus really knows how to participate here. And they live. But here's the problem. They, they, they're at the altar, and they get married, and then the movie ends. And you don't know what took place after the wedding at all. If you were to look at American statistics, and I know that we have the greatest divorce rate, the highest divorce rate in the world, but as you look at the statistics, you will find out it's pretty frightening. Uh, in fact, according to this survey, first marriages end in divorce 42% of the time, second marriages 60% of the time, and third marriages 73% of the time. Now, as you look at these stats, you can say, well, thank you very much, Pastor. I was uplifted in that worship, and now, man, well, how discouraging can you get? But let me, let me encourage you a little bit. I really don't. A lot of people say, well, these statistics are a little erroneous in the fact that how they, they are measured. Probably, as I research this, it's more like 30% of first marriages, 40-something, 40 45% of second marriages, and then it gets into maybe close to 60 in the third marriages. Now, whatever the stats are, Here's what I want to get us to get from that. The best chance you have at a successful marriage is the one you're in today. All right? And as we look at this whole institution of marriage, man, there's just a lot of, I mean, funny stories, a lot of jokes. I read something in the paper which says, uh, um, uh, in the one ads, it says, for sale, a wedding dress, unused, will trade for a 38 caliber pistol. And so you get that. And, and of course, the age-old question, if a, if a man walks out into the forest and he's alone and he says something and his wife is not around to hear him, is he still wrong? <laughs> you know, but somebody says yes. Well, I don't know. I'll, I'll let you all fight about that when you get home. But this passage, Jesus is talking about marriage, divorce, remarriage, singleness, all in one passage. Why in the world did he even address this? What context was it? And what do we do about it? How do we approach this passage? Well, first of all, I want you to know that we've had uh, divorce in our uh, greater family as well, our extended family. In fact, both of us uh, have sisters that uh, have gone through some tragic uh, stuff in their life. They got remarried, and believe me, they traded up, okay? And uh, in fact, some of them are listening to this message probably right now, and I, I want you to know that's how I feel about it. They, I feel like they, they got a, a great uh, gentleman right now um, 
in that marriage. And so it's been affected by us. Our church has people that have been divorced, remarried, and are serving somewhere in the church. They're serving on committees. Maybe they're teaching. Maybe they're, they're greeting you. All kinds of different ministries in the church. And the reason why so many pastors are so reluctant to preach on this is not because we're somehow, well, some guys maybe, but most of us are not afraid to take a stand on things. We just don't want to open up old wounds. There's nothing to benefit by opening up old wounds and old memories. And so I really don't want to do that this morning for you. But I do want to look at this message as a guardrail rather than the ambulance. Okay? Now, how many of you have ever been in the mountains before? Anybody here? How many of you know what a mountain is? You know? You're familiar with that? All right. Well, we used to, back when my kids were teenagers, we used to go up into the mountains in Gatlinburg and stay in this, one of these cabins up on top of one of these hills, hills and, they, and, and the roads go like this, and, it's, and you meet traffic, and you have to kind of squeeze by, and there's no rails, and we often think, wow, you know, if you were to make a wrong turn or go a little too fast, you would be off the mountain, down into the mountain, and to the ravine. Now, this message, I want it to be more of a guardrail. A guardrail to protect you from doing things that are going to hurt you in the long run. Otherwise, if you go off the mountain, what do we have to do? We have to call the ambulance. Now, there's nothing wrong with calling an ambulance for your marriage. If your marriage is in that kind of shape this morning, that's exactly what you need to do. You need to do whatever it takes, uh, counseling-wise or whatever, to make sure that marriage is successful. But I want to have a guardrail, because unless we preach on marriage, unless we do all this, there's no guardrails to keep you from making some of the wrong turns. And so as we open up Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is talking about relationships all the way through, uh, really, chapter 18. He's talking about defining moments in different relationships that we have in life. And so what we need to do is go to the Bible and find out about relationships. If you and I really want to know how to run our car, we're not going to say, well, I think I know how to do this. I mean, you, you started up in whatever. It says to put the gas right here, but I'm going to put the oil there. And it says to put the oil over here, but I'm going to put water in that. I'm going to do it my way. No, you wouldn't do that because the manufacturer will give you the way to run your car that you can, it can last and actually work. The same is true with marriage. God invented it. And so he knows how it ought to be run and how we can be successful at it. In order to do that, and I think and avoid catastrophe in our life, we need to understand four things from this passage. The point of marriage, the purpose of it, the permanence of it, and the priority, lastly, of that. So I want us to look in chapter 19, verse 1, and look at the point of marriage. It says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. At this point, Jesus had been ministering a long time in Galilee. In fact, he ministered more in Galilee than any other place. He was leaving Galilee forever, as far as his earthly life. And now he's on the road to Jerusalem, which means on the road directly to the cross. He's there. The Pharisees, it says, the large crowds followed him. Verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him. Now, you know these were the legalists of their day. They were the ones that were revered. And Jesus was taking away a lot of the clout from them, taking away a lot of the attention from them. And they were always trying to trap him. They did it with the coin in the, in the fishes, you know, the taxes and everything they could do to trap him. 
is matching him up against the law of Moses versus what he was saying with all the grace stuff that he was talking about. And so they came to a point, and they think, hmm, I think we're going to get him on this one. So they tested him. They put him to the test. They put him on the spot. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Why would they ask that? Well, there was a controversy going on in that day. People would look back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says that um, they could divorce on grounds of, um, of adultery or really indecency, as it would say. Well, there's two schools of thought here. One was the Shammai thought, and the Shammai thought said to them, to them, well, you can divorce only on the grounds of adultery. The Hillel thought that was popular in their day, that what Pharisees believed is that you could divorce your wife, not the wife to husband now, but you could divorce your wife for any reason at all. In fact, uh, it has been documented in writings that some people were, uh, for example, uh, divorced because they burned their dinner. She burned the dinner or put too much salt on the dinner or he found somebody prettier or somebody he liked a little bit better, could get along a little bit better. And so Jesus was put on the spot. Which side are you going to come up on? No win situation. Whatever side you come up on, somebody else is going to have a disagreement with you and no longer follow you. So it was a, it was a no win trapped situation that he was in. Well, he refers back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, which says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. That's out of Genesis 2.24. As you know, any time that you're trying to interpret a passage of the Bible, you go back to the place where it was first mentioned in the Bible. And so in Genesis chapter 2, it's mentioned there. He quotes that in the next few verses. Verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from, them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. Now, this is how the ESV uh, version of the Bible translate it, translates it. But in the original Greek, it means to hold fast. It means to cleave, same word. It means to cleave to something. And then he says, he said, therefore, a man shall hold fast, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What's he talking about here? A cleaving, a oneness here. Now, many of you have worked in vacation Bible school before, or maybe uh, teaching children. In fact, there's something I think in your bulletin today, you can get involved in that. You can make a difference in the lives of children by signing up for that. And so I remember back in vacation Bible school that we would work with construction paper, different colors, and Elmer's glue. Remember that? Elmer's glue? And so you, you put some glue on it, and you, you start doing all kinds of little figurines. Well, what we would like to do as guys is just simply take the glue, put a bunch of it on one sheet, and put a different color and match them up. You know, put them back to back. Just make a mess, you know? But when that stuff dries, what happens is you try to pull it apart. I've tried to do this, by the way, in the pulpit one time, and it was a mess. I just couldn't even do it. But you pull it apart, and say if it's orange and purple, some of the orange gets on the purple, some of the purple gets on the orange. They're just never really coming a clean break of anything because you're part of one another. You are one, you're cleaving to one another. This has the idea, and this is crucial, to having a covenant, not a contract. 
People say, well, it's just a bunch, it's a piece of paper. That's all it is. It's not just a piece of paper. A piece of paper is a contract. And a contract says, it's really dealing with property. Contracts, not, not people. It's really dealing with property. And it's, not, it's very limited, while a covenant is an oath. And it's permanent. It's not only permanent, but as we look at it, it has deep spiritual overtones. In fact, the covenant symbols at a wedding. The, uh, let, let me share with you before I get into this, though. The, the background to this, by the way, is in the Old Testament, they would have oaths. They would have covenants. And they would put a dead animal on one side and a dead animal on another, and sometimes several. And the people making the covenant would walk through in between the, uh, the dead animals. And they would be saying, if I break this oath, may it be done to me what was done to these animals. That's a pretty big oath. Very permanent. When God made a uh, covenant with Abraham and how he would bless him, Abraham did not have to pass through. Only God passed through that de those dead animals in Abraham's dream, saying that all the oath was with God, not with Abraham. But in the Old Testament, they would make oaths, and that's how they would do it. We look at the background of a wedding. When you come into a wedding, one of the families on one side, one family's on the other. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that they're like dead animals or anything like that, you know, but that, that's the symbolism. And the bride walks right down through the middle. That's a covenant relationship that's being shown. Then the groom enters, for, enters first, and that is a sign that he's the initiator of the covenant. The wedding dress for purity. Holding the right hand, you're taking vows, you are making the covenant. The wedding ring is a symbol of marriage authority and an unending love. The veil represents modesty. The pronouncement establishes a point in time in which the covenant begins, and even the feeding of the wedding cake is a symbol of oneness with one another. The important spiritual aspect to marriage is that it also symbolizes the church. Paul said this, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, talking about her, the church, that he might sanctify the church, having cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word. Christ has made a covenant to us. He died on the cross for our sins. And if we trust him as our personal Savior and Lord, he'll come into our heart and make a difference in our life and take us to heaven one day. That's God's covenant with us. And we are his church. The Bible calls us his bride. Jesus is like the husband. And there's a marriage relationship here. The marriage relationship that you and I have with our spouse is a symbol of Christ's relationship to the church. So the point, the essence of marriage really is cleaving. It's cleaving to one another in oneness. Brings me to the second point, and that is the purpose of it all. The purpose, he says, cleave to one flesh. Oneness, representing true companionship. Now, this is not just a you know, fellowship, friendship. This is true companionship as one. When God created Eve, he took the rib out of Adam and when Adam saw her, he said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's part of me. She's part of me. There was a oneness there. Now, you find a lot of different purposes for marriage in the Bible. 
uh, five different ones, but they all center around this oneness. We have to have a oneness. It communicates God's oneness, communicates it. And the fact that God created man in, in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. The Bible teaches us that it communicates the oneness that we have with God. This oneness also is coming together to continue God's creation. We have kids. That's how we multiply. The Bible says, and back in the book of Genesis chapter 1, he says, be fruitful and multiply. It's to cure our loneliness. Remember in the book of Genesis, when he created light, he created this animal and that animal, he said, all was good. But when he created Adam, he said, it's not good that man should be alone. And so to cure our loneliness together, both men and women, we have one another in a marriage situation. And then this oneness completes one another. Dear friends, we need to realize that when we come into this world, we do come here as sinners. And we come to a point in our life where we realize, hey, we don't do everything we ought to do. And, and we, we really break the laws of God. We're not perfect. There are blind spots in our life. Some of you that maybe went to college and had a roommate, and that roommate got irritated with you every once in a while, well, they were telling you there were blind spots in your life, but maybe you weren't close enough for them to really point it out and to really rag you about it. And so you just remained the same. I was reading not too long ago that most of the crimes in our society today are committed by single men. Now, the reason for that could be various, but one of the things is, is that there's not a wife there that there's, there's friction with. There's not children there that there's friction with, and so there's no reason for the man to ever do any changing, but just simply live for himself, which we're kind of in our sinning relationship uh, with, with ourselves built to do. There's nothing to change us. Our companionship one with another a oneness of the flesh, that's sacred. Oneness of soul, that's like a best friend. Oneness of spirit, that's a spiritual connection that we, we're never going to feel right without. You see, divorce, and we'll see in just a minute, since we have this oneness, is not about removing, say, a tattoo. You got a tattoo, I love Donna, you know, and you're not married to Donna. You think, well, I need to get that tattoo removed. So you remove it, that leaves a scar there. Okay, well, it leaves a scar, I'll wear a shirt. No, it's an amputation. It's like an amputation. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And so when the marriage is dissolved, it's, it's like an amputation. And we'll discover sometimes amputations have to be done. But what about you being one? Suppose, what would you look like? You know, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these apps, but I recently saw it and saw my picture, what I would look like if I were a woman, and then it's got it, you know, if you look like a man, it's got women, you know, with beards and things like that. It's really funny. But suppose there was an app that said, okay, if you had a mix of the husband and wife together in one picture, what would they look like? You know, it would have her eyes, maybe, his nose, her hair, his complexion. The body style, you know, long-waisted, short-waisted, one of, one of the other. Say, so, yeah, it'd be a real mix. Man, that would be really weird. No, it's not weird. It's called children. Okay? <laughs> that's, what, that's what happens. There's a oneness there, and you can look at your children and say, wow, we, really, we became one. 
That's what it is. Therefore, we find what Jesus was talking about here about the permanence of marriage. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now he's referring, again, to Deuteronomy chapter 24, when Moses permitted divorce for, a, for indecency, which could be maybe a lot of different things, but it's going to be a harsh thing. It's going to be a, a bad thing. And so they, he, said, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Hardness, it's sin. We, we refuse to listen to God. Things happen in life, refuse to listen to God because of sin. The hardness of the heart. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Let me sh sh share this with you before, because I might leave it out if I skip it right now. Commits adultery. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you're living, you marry somebody else, you're living in adultery. That is a, a present tense, a continuous tense that would be in the original Greek. This is an aorist tense, which means a point in time of action. You commit it. I don't know why, maybe it's the vows, maybe it's the first time uh, sex occurs in a marriage, after, but it's a commit, it's not living. But what is Jesus here saying about an exception clause to it all? Well, there's really three in the Bible. Adultery, which it mentions here, this word pornea, which means sexual immorality. And also, Paul adds something else in 1 Corinthians. Now, here's my thought, and I don't know the answer to this, I'm just kind of throwing it out there for thought. If Jesus was trying, because after all, he's put on the spot here. He's not trying to give us a, a lengthy thing on here's how to be married. Remember, Jesus' goal in life was simply to get everybody lost and just show him that he's the Savior. He wasn't getting into a lot of things. People say, well, Jesus didn't mention this in the Bible, so it must be okay. Jesus didn't mention a lot of things. He didn't mention anything about being a pedophile. But I don't think anybody would say that that's right. There's a lot of things he didn't mention. He left it up to the epistles. He knew that the writings of Paul, the writings of Peter, the writings of John would be coming out stating many of the doctrines that, and teachings that we have in the church. He is just simply answering this question here. But if it was exhaustive, then why was Paul allowed to add something? He said, in spiritual abandonment that you married to someone that's not a Christian, they don't want to live with you anymore, let them go. Let them go. You say, yeah, let them go, but you can't remarry. Let me just say this. There was no reason to ask this question at all if remarriage was not understood. Remarriage in this passage and in the Bible is a given. If you have a, a reason or the right, the scriptural right to divorce, then you have the scriptural right to be remarried. And don't let anybody tell you, I mean, there's no reason why they would ask this question to Jesus. And many of the passage, passages about this would not really make sense unless remarriage was understood. But notice there's abandonment. And thirdly, marriage and divorce that, that happens prior to salvation. Listen to what 2 Corinthians says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. Now, if marriage and divorce, we're saying, oh, no, it, it, except you can't be divorced and, you know, it still applies. Well, if that's true, then it's the only unpardonable sin. But it's not. The only unpardonable sin is to reject the grace of God and reject Jesus Christ. 
That's the only one. And so old things are passed away. Things have become new. But divorce is a hurtful thing. In Malachi, people, people are drawn to this verse, and they, they feel bad about what's going on in their life because it says God hates divorce. Well, what would, he, what would you expect? I mean, really, for him to say, oh, it's okay for you to hurt in that divorce. I don't really hate that. It does, it's, a, you know, it's okay that you're suffering. I don't hate that. Marriage brings about a division. It's a tearing away. It's an amputation. You know, God could say, well, you know, I really don't hate amputations. I think, you know, uh, you know here's a leg, there's an arm. You know, who cares? Obviously. Don't, don't you hate divorce? Some of you have been divorced. Don't you hate divorce? Sure you do. You hate what it brings. You hate the poverty sometimes that it brings. You hate the, the children and what they go through when there's a divorce. You hate it that you've been hurt so bad. But divorce is a hurtful, hurtful thing. And so what do you do? We have a situation here where it talks about really something so hurtful, it's like an amputation. Again, it's not a splinter. I've got to remove a splinter here. Or I've got to remove, no, I've got to remove a leg. I remove a leg. Now, we'll just say a soldier, he's lying on, a, on the bed after a, being attacked and maybe a mortar has gone off. It's really hurt his leg badly. Looks like gangrene may set in. They may have to amputate. And the doctor looks down at him and says, uh, look, we could amputate, but I think that I can save the leg. But if I do, boy, you're going to have a hard time in rehab. It's going to be months and months of, of, of hurt. It's going to be months and months of trying. It's going to be months and months. Oh, my goodness. And, he's, and finally, the soldier just says, wow, that sounds really, really bad. Just go ahead and just take the leg. No, he wouldn't do that at all, would he? He would say, just do whatever you have to do. Do what you have to do to save the leg. See, sometimes amputations have to happen, but it's not a first resort. It's a last resort. And this is the point I believe that Jesus is getting to more than any other point. He's saying, look, it's not just, hey, my wife burned dinner. My husband doesn't look as good as he used to look. No, it's an amputation. It's not a removal of a tattoo or a splinter. It's, it's a removal of a limb, a part of you, of who you are. It needs to be a last resort. And yeah, it's going to be some hard work. Yes, it will be, be pain and maybe some suffering to work through all those things that you have to work through. But it's going to be worth, worth it because it's, it's an amputation. And most of the people in the surveys that have been done by psychologists, most of the people who, who went through divorce, a few, several months later, a couple of years later, regretted it. Boy, I could have done something else. I could have just maybe done something else. Most, not all. Sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. But the amputation is a last thing, not a first thing. Well then, I want us to see the priority that it has to be. When your leg has been, had surgery, when maybe arteries and veins have been put back together, knee has been put back together, rehab, hard work. It has to be a priority. Notice what it says here in verse 10. 
The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. I mean, you know what they're saying here, right? Wow, that sounds like a life sentence without the possibility of parole. But it doesn't have to be, right? It doesn't have to be. But they said, he said, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And I realize in a, even in a church like this, no matter how you put this, there's hurt involved in some people's lives. Sometimes it's fresh. And maybe you're going to leave here today. I'll never go back to that church. Man, they brought up something that just opened up no one. But I'm going to ask you to ask God to let you be the one that can listen to this. He says not everybody can hear it. Will you be one of those that can hear it? Because there's hope for you. Now I realize that we have, in this whole idea of cleaving, some challenges. And we do. Um, Let's read on. Not everyone can receive this, verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Now, these are eunuch is physically someone's gone through something physical, physical surgery, where they can't have children anymore. But then he gets into the spiritual. And those who have been eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about a spiritual. In other words, they've decided to be single. Let the one who has able to receive this, receive it. There's some people who because of the ministry and because of their, their missionary or their evangelist, they have to travel. They need to be free to do all that. There's a calling to it, a calling to be single. But he says it's not, it's not so with most of you. Now, I know, there, again, there's a problem. There's a problem of defective materials because we're all sinners. There's, a prob- there's problems because there's differences between men and women. There's stress in our life. There's different expectations but it's not a life sentence. It's not. Let me illustrate this in, in this way. Um, I know that we have no-fault divorce today and all that, but suppose, let's, let's look at our children for just a moment. You know, here's a baby that's been born. It's like a honeymoon period, really, isn't it? In the sense is, wow, you know, look at this baby's all cooing. You know, it's, it just looks up, the big blue eyes or whatever stare at you. And, and wow, you know, the, all that hair on their head, which is usually probably nothing. And, and then you look at them and, boy, you're willing to change the diapers, whatever you have to do. It's great. They grow up and, boy, they're four or five years old now and six years old and they're already talking. And you think, man, how... How precious is that, you know? They get in elementary, well, elementary school, it's still pretty easy. But, you know, they get dirty a lot, and they wear their baseball cap for six months in a row without washing their hair and stuff like that. And you think, wow, you know, it's kind of a little sticky now and all that. But then they become teenagers. No offense to anybody over here. Okay. And they start growing up, and they start having a, they start having a mind of their own. Anyway. They start having a mind of their own, and maybe they start sassing you a little bit. They won't mow the grass. They won't do anything around the house. And, but you notice the neighbor's kid mowing the grass every Saturday with a clean baseball cap. But you go over there, and, and you talk to him, and he says, yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, thank you very much, sir. And you think, man, what a perfect kid. You know, I think I'll trade up. And you kick your, your son out of the house, and you adopt this one over here. 
Man, you got a much better deal, right? Now, let me tell you the reason why you don't do that. I'll give you three reasons. Number one, you love them. Right? Well, don't you love your wife? Don't you love your husband? Number two, there's a commitment to them. But you've got to get them at least till they're 18, at least. Maybe 21, maybe 31. But 18, we'll stick with that number. You get them to they're 18 years old, there's a commitment. Well, don't you have a commitment with your, to your spouse? But here's the third one. It is not socially, socially acceptable to trade up, okay? It's just not. Your neighbors will talk about you. The police will come and arrest you, probably. But it is socially acceptable to try to trade up in marriage. That's the society we live in. And so since it's socially acceptable, when the times really, really, really get tough, we just say, go ahead and take the leg. I mean, I, you know, is it really an amputation? Is it really? No, I think I'm just getting a tattoo removed. It says the wrong thing. No big deal. No, it's an amputation. Because the oneness that you have with your spouse that cannot be easily erased. It just can't be. So it's our attitude. Our attitude, Jesus is saying, well, you're willing maybe to go through some things, but you're drawing the line because things, life has changed so much, you're, willing to, you're, you're going to draw the line and say, you know, I've had it. That's enough. I'm getting rid of my daughter, and I'm going to trade up. I'm getting rid of my son. I'm gonna, no, you wouldn't do it. But you would say, I'm getting rid of my spouse, and maybe I can trade up and get somebody that I really want. And Jesus is saying, hey, look, divorce to the Pharisees and answer their question. This is not your first resort. It is your last. Do anything, doctor. Do anything, doctor, to save my leg. Anything. As we look at this passage, I wonder to myself as I'm studying this passage, God, what do I tell the people at the end? Because Really, Jesus is answering a question, but he doesn't give us any direction right here in this passage. And so I recall one of my favorite pastors of all time, John Bassanio, First Baptist Church of Houston for 20-something, 30-something years, retired several years ago and passed away this year, preached a sermon on Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, and he applied it to marriage. And he said that many people that come to him for marriage counseling are falling out of love between, the age, between four and seven years of marriage. And he, all, he advises them every time to do the same thing. And it comes out of Revelation 2. It's not about marriage. It's about a church repenting, about getting right with the Lord and getting back to their first love, really. But he says this in Revelation 2, 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else... I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. He says, and I believe this to be true, this applies to our relationships. For example, the first thing you do, you want to repair your marriage? You say, well, I can't do this on my own. Well, you know, if I'm going to take the analogy a little step further, your leg is not, does not have the same determination to save it that you do. So, you can save your marriage alone. First thing, remember. Remember why you fell in love. Remember receiving them for who they are. Now, men and women are different in this. 
Oftentimes, a man will think to himself, look, I did all this when I was courting her, dating her, and I did all this to win her over. How many times do I have to win her over? Do I have to win her over every day? Well, maybe. And she's thinking to herself, this is the perfect guy. Man, he can do no wrong. He's the Prince Charming. And then the second day of marriage, it's a little different. She realized, well, you know, I can correct all that. Because she, he loves me so much. All I got to do is point out his faults, and he'll immediately change. See, the problem is you haven't accepted your husband for who he is. Remember, why did you fall in love with him? Remember, why did you fall in love with her? You remember the times, the great times that you had. Do you remember making the covenant? Do you remember the price that your friends have paid for divorce? And then it says to repent. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Now, you've made mistakes. Now you, it may be, in your mind, 90% your spouse's fault, 10% yours. Then repent of the 10%. Ask God to reveal blind spots in your life. Could you do that? Could you be cha challenged to do that? Can your self-esteem handle that? That you will suddenly realize in a, one right after the other, maybe one at a time, but one right after the other, the blind spots in your life. Can you do that? Repentance. Repentance of your end of it. Repentance of not putting enough effort maybe into the marriage. And then return. Return to the first works if you're going to return to your first love for Jesus. Return to your first works. What did you do when you were courting her? What did you do when he was courting you? What did you do those first several years, that honeymoon period, like it was holding the baby? You know, an analogy. What did you do when everything seemed to be so good? Return and do your first works. And remember, you made not a contract. It wasn't just a piece of paper. You made an oath, a covenant, which is always permanent. Always permanent. Always there that you've made a covenant. I remember something else in the Bible where there was a thief on one side, a thief on the other, and there was the cross of Jesus in the middle. And people walked between those two crosses to the cross of Jesus to get the power in their life that they need. Because some people ask, well, Pastor, how in the world can I do this? Well, you can't. You really can't. We're, we're too fleshly oriented. The only way that you and I can come to the place of having the kind of marriage that God wants us to have and to save our marriage is through Jesus Christ, through the cross. You see, receiving Christ gives you the power and the desire to do the will of God. Your prayers and your reading of the Bible give you direction on what to do to save your relationships. And then finally, the works, the action, makes it a reality. But that first step is to receive Christ, or maybe if you've already received Christ, that first step is to say, Lord, I just want to get right with you. I want to re remember you. I want to repent to you. I, I want to return to my first works for you that I can do what I need to do for my family. What about you today? If you've never received Christ into your heart, I'm here, I, I just want to help you. I'm just here to help you. 
And that's going to be the key. It's, it's not a magic bullet that says, okay, my marriage is going to be great. No, you, but it does give you the power and the desire to do the will of God. And then as you read the Bible, it gives you direction. And as you pray about it, you put it into action. That's what's going to help you in your marriage. But it begins foundationally with Jesus Christ. Have you ever received him? Does he live in your heart? If he doesn't, I want to give you the opportunity right now that he can come to live inside your heart. So let's pray together. With heads bowed and eyes closed, this is part of the invitation to respond to how God would have you to respond. Every week, it seems, we have people pray to receive Christ. I'd like for you to be one of those this morning. And you can do so by praying this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I know I'm not perfect. I know I've sinned. And I have blind spots in my life. And I know that I've sinned more than I could ever realize. But I'm coming to the cross. I'm coming between the two thieves. And I'm coming directly to the middle cross where you died for me. I'm asking you, based on what you've done for me, to forgive me of all my sins and to come into my life as you, as you promise. As you say, whosoever, that's me, will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I call on you today. I pray that you would save me. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.